Welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. Uh, my name is Phil Topham, Executive Director of the FIEC. And with me this morning are John Stevens, our National Director. Hello, John. Hi, Phil. Uh, and Adrian Reynolds, our Head of National Ministries. Hello, Adrian. Welcome to spring. Uh, welcome to spring. It has, spring. it has sprung. It feels a little warm. It's going it, forward. It, it, well, that's this weekend, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, don't be, don't be late for church by an hour. There's yeah. always one family that does yeah. it, I think, yeah. in every church. It's, it's OK there? as long as the, the preacher doesn't. That's the yeah, main that's thing. The, that's, the, that's the main one. <laughs> and well, it's time for our look at the news. This is In the News, uh, when we look at the main news stories uh, of the, the last couple of weeks. And I want us to start with the Metropolitan Police. Um, mm. So Baroness Casey's report um, came out this week uh, where she labelled uh, the Met Police uh, institutionally racist, misogynistic, homophobic. Um, she said uh, they can't be in denial about the deep-rooted issues at the heart of the Metropolitan Police. An absolutely excoriating uh, report from Baroness Casey. Uh, and it does, I think, further undermine trust in the police, doesn't it? That, that, that's got to be what it does, first and foremost. Well, I think inevitably, um, and I mean, it is a shocking report mm, in terms of what's been exposed in terms of a sort of systemic racism, uh, misogyny, homophobia. It's even more shocking that 24 years ago, the McPherson report exposed the institutional racism yep. of the Metropolitan Police. And therefore, kind of at one level, the question arises, why has not that not been dealt with? Why has that not been um, kind of addressed? And inevitably, it undermines trust. But at one level, it probably exposes a reality that many people thought was the case anyway. So it highlights the way the black community in London have been badly treated by the police. Over-policed, they um, said, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I think That's in many ways, the black community would recognise that. So it's in a sense, the trust had already been lost. And so simply exposing the reality, the same is true in relation to violence against women and domestic abuse. Rape, rape victims in London, many women in London feel the police have not served their interests. So um, it, you might be right that it does undermine trust in the police, but I think amongst the constituencies, um, that trust had already been lost because of the way the police um, had behaved. And therefore, the report perhaps um, opens an opportunity for those issues to be addressed and to be resolved and to bring them to the attention of um, the Met. But there's no denying that they expose a culture of um, abuse, um, failure, um, uh, choosing of priorities that disadvantage some group groups and, and not others. Um, and it, it has been absolutely shocking. And, and it, it again reveals that sort of the relationship between kind of individual wrongdoing and cultural and institutional kind of wrongdoing, because obviously there are multiple stories of the way that um, sort of individuals have behaved towards um, officers, um, the sexism, the racism that's been, that's been experienced. So there's no doubt there's individual wrongdoing but it's also exposed something much bigger than that, which is a whole culture that kind of justifies and permits that wrongdoing. The commissioner's pushed back on that, hasn't he? So he's, he's avoided using the word Institutional. institutionally. Yeah, yeah. What, do, what do you make of that, John? So, so his argument was, you know, that's tars everybody in the Met in the same way. And of course there are, and we want to acknowledge that, there are good, I mean, we know Christians who are serving in the Met, there are good, honest police officers full of integrity. So is he right to do that? Is he right to push back on that institutional language? Well, he has done, and the Police Federation has pushed back on that mm. as well. So there's one narrative that would say the problem with the Met is some bad apples yeah. that need to be sort of dealt with. The other view is that actually the whole system is operating in a way that perpetuates. Which is what the institutional language kind of points Absolutely. towards, isn't it? Yeah. And at one level, yeah. I think the, the Met sort of chief is, is an outlier in saying that virtually everybody else has accepted that this does reflect yeah, something yeah. of a systemic kind of culture. And that was the judgment of the McPherson report. And I think we should remember that sort of McPherson was no kind of woke liberal. He was a kind of a high court judge, mm. deeply analysing the way that the Met operated and the, the culture that it that it that it had. Um, so it obviously is, is politically charged at the moment, um, and it's almost understandable why he wants to defend the police, kind of um, in that way. But he is an outlier, and he's been criticised for that. Mm. 
And I think we've seen the same issue, haven't we, in relation to churches where issues of uh, kind of misuse of power have, have occurred within churches. That debate of whether or not it is purely some individuals who've behaved badly or whether there's something more systemically and culturally wrong um, is, is kind of an issue. And Christians have divided on that. Um, it's bound up, as, as the Met Chair said, this has become a politically loaded word because it does fit with what our culture is saying about what it means to be woke, and it can be misused in that way. I do think biblically there's a, a sort of it's, it's an important insight that sin operates not just at the personal level, mm. but actually it does operate at a societal level. Yeah. So procedures, policies, um, and, and approaches um, have the effect of um, uh, causing harm to people, disadvantaging people, and sin becomes embedded within mm. systems and the way that they operate. And actually, the Bible would tell us that's that's the way that it is. If you look at the early chapters of Genesis. You have clearly on the one hand individual sin on the parts of people, but you have um, the, the, degradation, the degradation of society as a mm. whole as sin begins to work yeah. its its way through it. Genesis 6, isn't it? Um, That's exactly what happens. And yeah. Indeed. So, so sin generates kind of unjust structures that kind of cause harm to people. And I think from a, a holistic biblical perspective, and we shouldn't be afraid of recognizing that sin is both individual, but it also has corporate and collective and institutional elements in the way, in the way that it works out. Lessons for us as a church then, Adrian? I mean, well, there are many, actually, and we could do several podcast episodes just on this. But two things that really leapt out to me. One is how um, their problems are especially present in elite units. So the firearms units, the diplomatic protection units. Um, these are the, the some of the units that the report um, uh, authors looked at and found to be particularly um, that the environment to be particularly sinister, malicious, and um, I, I think there is there is a lesson there that there is um, when you start creating elite kind of leadership roles or elite kinds of service, kinds of service that are somehow better than others, um, you do run the risk of cre creating a kind of, you know, you can't touch me sort of um, atmosphere. And I think all of us who have, um, you know, we serve in the local church, but but many pastors and, and the three of us around the room are in this position, serve in other ministries as well. There is a danger that we start to see ourselves as somehow beyond, you know, the, the, the ordinary calling of a pastor, which of course is the highest, I think is the highest calling of all. And when you start creating these sort of elite national, international roles, um, I, I think you have to be very, very careful. You have to work especially hard at accountability. Mm. You have to work especially hard at how you communicate and how you're represented. But because you you are you're not just in your local church where there's accountability and friendship and love and and, and relationship. You're, you're operating in a world where some of those things are absent. Mm. And so I, I think there's something about um, you know some of the roles that we create within evangelicalism, which are probably necessary to serve the church. But we need to be very careful mm. how they're managed. I think, I think that's one observation. I think the second observation is just that the Met is enormous. It has an enormous budget. Um, I, I hadn't quite appreciated this. They were talking about the different divisions in the report and, and how a chief superintendent is in charge of, a, of, a, of an area of, of London. And, and the, the force under the chief superintendent will be larger than many other police services across, across the, country, the country with all the associated um, kind of support structures that go under them. And, and I think when churches get big, we need to be especially careful. Um, the, the way essentially you have to run a, a large church is you have to work hard organization. It, it necessarily becomes a bit more hierarchical. It's the only way to make it work. Mm. You know, if you're a church of 40, um, you, you can have a relationship with everybody. If you're a church of 400, you've got to think very differently about how that operates. And again, the danger is as we get larger, 
and we get more distanced as senior leaders, especially from people, then um, the temptations to fall into to sins, especially systemic sins, I think are greater. Mm. So it, it is interesting. There's no answer to that, I don't think, in the Met. And they're talking about perhaps breaking it up, but it's difficult to see how that might work in a place like London, where actually it is it is a whole. You know, how would you... How would neighbouring forces, all those sorts of questions, um, you know, are, are very, very difficult to resolve. But it does seem to me there is a, there's a problem of size that actually means the, the Met has been unable to heal itself. Mm. So you're, you're, you're right, um, John, to, to refer to the, um, uh, you know, the, the case of the McPherson report and the institutional racism. And, and, and it's interesting that, that nothing has been done. That's, that's the kind of the accusation. Um, and I think things have been done, but not enough has been done. Mm. And, and I think that just goes to show that actually large organisations, they have a momentum of, of themselves. Mm. They're very, very difficult to, to mm. sort of turn around, really. Mm. Mm. Um, and just to comment, I, mean, I think in relation to the elite, you know, it's one of the things that flows out is the prioritisation of choosing where you put resources. So um, the report says that those units basically got everything they wanted, whatever yeah. gadgets, whatever equipment, they, they could have everything. Whereas, for example, the rape units or the domestic violence units were operating simply on a shoestring. That's right. And again, I think in ministry, we need to look at where do we put our resources? Do we kind of um, have some ministries that get everything, some ministries that are under-resourced? That tells you an awful lot about whether or not we're, we're serving needs um, in, in, in an appropriate way. I think another observation is I think the report recognises that culture change takes a very long time. Mm. So it would be easy to come to this report and think there's an easy, simplistic solution. Whereas actually they say, for example, kind of raising the number of people from ethnic minorities serving in the Met, they think will take decades to achieve kind of something that reflects wider society. So there is a realism that cultural change doesn't happen overnight. Um, and it kind of re requires a sustained commitment to keep changing the culture. And again, I think that's helpful for us because in churches, again, we can think culture, we might identify a problem and think, oh, well, therefore it can be solved. But cultures take a very long time to be able to kind of be shifted and changed. It requires sustained commitment to do that. And I think the failure after the McPherson report is that that obviously wasn't sustained. Is there a parallel in Northern Ireland? You know, the RUC had a terrible reputation, didn't it, historically? And I'm not saying it's um, you know, that the um, Austin Sabri now is, is perfect. But actually, there has, there has been a change, hasn't there, in the way that the police service is seen in Northern Ireland over, over a you know, a period of time. Uh, yeah, and that required some significant changes. Did. External yeah, right. people brought in to yeah. kind of review it, um, the replacement of officers who didn't want to stay. Yeah. So um, I think there were sort of officers who were basically paid to leave the service because they didn't want to work with the new culture. So it was costly yeah. um, to um, sort of, in a sense, retire and remove those who weren't willing to work with mm. um, a, a new culture. And that's part of sustaining it. But even, even in Northern Ireland, I guess, the police service has to keep maintaining that new culture. It's not something that's ever done and fully finished. Again, the Bible would tell us that's the case. Sin constantly corrupts. You never deal with sin in the way that it's eliminated and it's removed. It requires a constant vigilance, a constant dealing, a constant repentance, a constant forgiveness. Um, and I think we need to recognize that many of these things are, are, are not done. And, and, and leadership to do that. So one of the questions being raised is, um, can the current Met chief lead mm. um, that cultural change? But here, again, there's a lesson that sort of identity politics is not the answer. So the previous um, Met commissioner was Cressida Dick, mm. who was a woman and from the LGBTQ community. And at one level, you might think, well, people would think that would solve the problem if you have somebody who's appointed who reflects certain of the groups who are being mistreated. Surely that will mean the culture will change. But evidently it didn't. And her leadership yeah. has been... And then which comes back to size as well, changed. doesn't it? Because she's a long, long way from the foot soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the distance between the, the top and the bottom of the organisational tree and the Met is enormous. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Another institution that's been in the news this week is Ofsted. This is the school's inspector. This follows the tragedy of the head teacher who took her own life um, while expecting an Ofsted report to be published that would downgrade her school, I think, from, from outstanding to inadequate or, 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 yeah, or right. so dropping it down uh, in that way. Um, and that has led to a, a bit of a dam bursting amongst teachers, those who've been standing in solidarity with her. Um, some have talked about refusing entry to Ofsted inspectors. Others have taken the Ofsted logo from their letterheads. And um, there's been, it feels like a bit of a, a sea change uh, in this, this last couple of weeks about this. And um, first of all, what, what, do we, what do we make of the Ofsted model? I mean, I experienced it at school and it had just, just come in when I was at school um, and it was fascinating to observe as a pupil. Um, it just sounds like it's just got more and more onerous over the decades for, for teachers and, and, and schools. Am I, am I overthinking that? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, none of us are teachers. No. Um, so it's difficult to, to comment on it from a sort of first hand. I mean, you've seen it as a, as a pupil, but um, it's difficult to know exactly the, the stress it causes um, uh, for staff. And I think we, we all know staff um, in, and head teachers in yeah. schools, it does cause an extraordinary amount of stress. And um, I, I think on, you know, I, 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 I feel some, somewhat mixed about it because I, I think upholding standards in education is important. Um, we, we do want our, you know, we do want our children, we've all got children, we, we do want children to be well-educated in the state system. And, and we do want poor education to be called out and, and rooted out. Um, you know, it's a different issue, I know, but not in a dissimilar way that we've been talking about with the Met. We do want things that are substandard to be to be called out. But, but is this the way to do it? Well, it's difficult to know how to do it, Phil. So there's always there have been school inspections for for 120 years, I think. Um, Ofsted is um, a relatively recent invention in your lifetime. Thank you. I'm you're a, young you're a youngster, and um, those of us who are much older on this side of the table. Um, but there, there have always been inspections. Uh, the difference is, I think, it's become professionalised. Mm. So initially, when Ofsted was set up, actually, people were co-opted from other schools, um, head teachers who had um, retired, or taken early retirement, or were actually employed by Ofsted to go and do inspections. Um, in more recent years, um, professional organisations have, have had the work sub subcontracted to them. So I, I think there is an issue about you know, trying to do it as cheaply as possible. And, um, and, and, and some of the motive behind that is by having a consistent... You know, consistent basis and all the rest of it. But actually, once you start having Ofsted inspectors think who themselves are not teachers or who have, it seems, in this particular situation and other situations, we know certain agendas, mm. then I think it, it does become worrying. So I, I, I do want there to be standards in schools, I think, and I, I do want schools to, to be called out and, and, and to measure up. But actually, any inspection that is based on um, you know, a 24-hour visit mm. or a 48-hour visit um, is, is, is a little bit, it's always it's always going to be odd, isn't it? It's a snapshot in the life of the school, isn't it, John? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, well, again, I can understand why government wants to be able to inspect and ensure that standards are maintained um, in kind of education. And, and your hearts go out to the kind of family of this teacher, head teacher who's killed herself. And actually, I would imagine also to the Ofsted inspectors. I can't imagine that they would have thought this would be the consequence of their inspection and they've done their job. And I would imagine they feel awful about what the consequences of that have, have been. There's been a particular issue um, recently with... Uh, so outstanding schools haven't been inspected for quite a long time. More than a decade yeah. in some yeah. cases, it, I think. It does yeah. seem that Ofsted has adopted a policy of wanting to inspect outstanding schools and reduce their ratings in, in, in many cases. I, th I think a fundamental uh, problem with this whole process is not so much the inspection, but to reduce a verdict on a school to a single word mm. so that you can summarise the, the totality of what is happening by words that are mm. kind of very strong, you know, outstanding or inadequate. 
mean, if you hear the word inadequate, what do you think about um, a school? From what I've read, the main reasons for that was to do with some issues of record keeping and in relation to some aspects of um, uh, sort of safeguarding issues. It was a playground being, fight, was being wasn't operated. it, when the inspectors yeah. were visiting. Yeah. Um, and you kind of think that is not then a verdict on the educational experience yeah. mm-hmm. of most children who are there. So I think it's this reductionist way of describing a school in a single word Whereas um, actually the inspection covers a whole variety of aspects of different life of the school. So I actually read the inspection report on my kids' school, mm. and it covers everything from pastoral care to kind of the educational experience in the classroom, academic achievements, the governance structure of the school, um, uh, kind of issues of safeguarding policy. So it, it's actually covering a vast range of the areas of activity of the school. And to try to summarize that in, in one word, doesn't seem to necessarily yes. be able to encapsulate Especially a the word reality. like good, which is yeah, <laughs> and, and inadequate, which a parent might think it may think means, well, yeah. what on earth are my children experiencing in the classroom? So you can understand why when you're labelled in that way, mm. um, it's very difficult to respond to it. And I think there's a warning to us there about simplistic judgments. Yeah. I see this in, in in Christian circles all the time. We might think about a church and people making a judgment about a church, and so often people talk about a sound church or a good church mm. or whatever. And often that is a single word summary of a totality of things that are going on. And usually it's one aspect of a church that people have chosen to use to pass that verdict on it. So I think, I think we just need to recognize that um, actually that is um, often unfair. It's not fully accurate. It doesn't take into account all of the circumstances. Our judgments need to be much more nuanced than that. But actually people feel the pain of us labeling them in very mm. simplistic terms. Mm. And you can't judge a church on a one Sunday visit, can you? No, you can't. And I think it would be very odd to go along to, I mean, I always think, um, you know, when I was a pastor, um, I'd sort of get to the end of a service and think, um, oh, I hope there weren't any visitors here today. <laughs> they probably won't come back. But no, I, th- I think you want, I think you want to explore that more widely, don't you? You want to be thinking about you know, what you're looking for in a church and recognise churches will be stronger at some things than they are at others. And that changes over time as well, mm. depending on the leaders. And actually, um, you need to be thinking in the round, I, I would say, about church. And I, I mean, I Labour have proposed that perhaps a report card would be a better better approach, and maybe there's some merit in that. I, I wonder too, if in, in just in church life, it raises a question of self-evaluation. Now, I think leaders of churches should be spending time regularly looking at church life and evaluating it for themselves. And asking other people what they think and, and getting some input, you know, the kind of thing that you would hope inspectors are coming into schools to do. And um, you would hope actually that good leaderships of organizations, whether that's a school, whether that's FIC, we do it, um, that we're actually asking questions about ourselves. Um, how are we doing? Um, you know, what, what do people think of us? What are people saying about us that we need to hear and, and respond to? And um, we, we do that a lot. We, we have a, a termly retreat where we often ask those kinds of questions and they're important questions to ask. And I think especially for church leaderships, you should be asking those questions. You should be, you know, not all the time. We, we don't want to be navel gazing. But I think we ought to be asking on a fairly regular basis, how are we doing as a church? Mm. And how are we doing against the biblical criteria for what a church should be doing? And where are areas of weakness that we need to be honest about and we need to, to work on and pray through? Where are things that we can rejoice in? And, and very often, I think um, church leaders are either too optimistic and just rejoice in all the things that are good and aren't honest enough about the things that they struggle with, or they're too pessimistic mm. and they think everything's a disaster and, and needs improving. But actually, there are often there are often things to rejoice at in church and to, to thank God for. And, and actually, that that spirit of self evaluation, it seems to me, is absolutely critical for church leadership. 
I think it's worth saying, I think one of the big changes in society from 50 years ago is that then professionals were trusted to get on with their job. We now live in a culture in which kind of investigation, appraisal, assessment, kind of metrics um, are all part of the way that people are held to, to account. And that does create massive pressures on people um, in their jobs and in their work. Same in the NHS, um, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think as church leaders, we need to really support the people in our congregations who are in those workplaces. That is the reality of where they spend much of their time and much of their life. And it, it is intensely pressured. Mm. It's both an opportunity to serve Christ, but there's also all these vulnerabilities that are there. And I think as churches, supporting and helping people as they experience those pressures is just a huge, huge part of what our pastoral mm. ministry has to be. Self-evaluation then. Let's bring that back to uh, the Commons. Uh, oh, and, whether, and whether... Um, our favourite partying prime minister did indeed mislead the comments. Oh, what's he been up to um, now? So, well, as we, as we know <laughs> this week, he's, he's, he's come before a, um, a parliamentary oh, committee. Boris. Did Boris Johnson um, mislead Parliament? So let's start there. John, yes well, or he's, no? It, well, sorry, he says he did. <laughs> yeah, but not so, intentionally. Yeah, so not intentionally. I thought misleading... Well, yeah, yeah this, uh, we're getting I, into vocab. Well, 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 we are. <laughs> but, but I think it's, it's, there, is, there has been something fascinating about watching it this week because... Um, it, it seems to me, uh, this is my, my my layman's observation, that here is a man who stood up before the nation every evening telling us what the COVID rules were, but now is seeming to say, well, they weren't particularly clear, so I'm not sure if I misled Parliament or not. Am I, am I overthinking that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's ultimately for the judgment for the committee to make that decision. You've heard all the Oh, come on, John, you can, you no, can no, no. make a decision. Um, I, I'm, uh, well, we I can now reveal that John said <laughs> yeah, before yeah. we went on air. No, no, I didn't. What's striking to me is how people um, have actually already made up their mind in large measure. Mm. So um, actually there have been a whole load of people who are supporters of Boris who've said his performance in kind of parliament in the committee, he's shown that there's no basis to this whatsoever. This is a kangaroo court and it ought to be dismissed and it's all part of a witch hunt. There's a whole load of other people who've taken exactly the opposite yeah. view and said, here is somebody who has patently lied and is providing very bad excuses for why they didn't really understand. It's not going to change anyone's mind, is no, what it's, you're saying. It, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's not. And, and, and actually, everybody will have to make up their own mind as to whether or not the evidence that he presented kind of um, is a real justification. It does seem really hard to believe that somebody who in, in that position of power, who knew what was happening in the country, who has advisors all around him, who is urging the country to, um, in a sense, avoid all social contact, stay at home, do nothing, um, where people were being fined up to £10,000 for organising a party of 30 people in their house, um, seems to sort of be a claim that they can be unaware of what was happening in, in their own kind of um, off office and uh, place. Um, at the same time, I have a measure of sympathy, the kind of boundary line between what's work and what's not work wasn't clear in the guidance. Mm. And for those of us who were involved in trying to advise churches as to what it meant, again and again, um, actually it wasn't really very clear. And there were edges and there were fuzziness as to whether things fell um, within or not. The, the guidance was produced very rapidly and mm. was constantly changing. Mm. And it did leave scope for kind of negotiation around those edges. So at one level, I also want to recognise actually in some of these things, um, the guidance was not crystal clear as to exactly where the boundary lines between um, sort of activities um, uh, sort of fell. That's very gracious. It's very John. measured, John. And, Thank and you. I'm, we're in that group. We had, we had um, my father-in-law died during the COVID pandemic of uh, ultimately of pancreatic cancer, which was um, his, his whole situation was exacerbated by catching COVID. We couldn't see him. Mm. And we weren't allowed to go and see him. We had to say goodbye to him on a mobile phone. So it feels very, this feels very raw to me. I couldn't yeah. watch it actually mm. um, because I just, I just thought that the way that, um, so it seems to me, this is a very personal observation. I don't mean this to be political, but the way that 
Boris kind of obfuscates and, and just sort of dodges questions um, and blusters and self-justifies, I personally find um, very difficult given the circumstances we went through. I just think that's very painful. And I, and I think the lack of sympathy that there is towards those who did take a different view and did try and keep to rules and did try and do what was asked of them, I think is, I just think it's extraordinary. And um, a little bit more humility mm. wouldn't go amiss, it seems to me. It seems to miss the reality that there were lots of people who were finding this period hard. So it's yeah, all very yeah, well yeah. saying, you know, it was it was hard for us trying to make the decision. Well, it was hard for NHS workers. Yeah. It was hard for teachers. It was yeah. hard for parents. It was hard for everybody in different yeah. ways. And we did learn to how to do things on Zoom and, you know, the, um, you know, the argument that, that 10 Downing Street is an old townhouse and people um, kind of brushing up against one another. Well, most things we learned how to do remotely. We didn't need to be in the same place. So I, I just think there's some, to me, there were some big unanswered questions in that. What leadership lessons are there, John? Well, I think you have to lead with integrity um, and um, there needs to be a commitment to a kind of honesty. I mean, at one level, politicians twist the truth, um, defend themselves, um, spin. Um, that's become part and parcel of political culture for some period of, of time. I mean, you can see this week that the debates have been going on about the whole kind of Northern Ireland protocol, a kind of agreement and the, and the Windsor um, uh, kind of framework that's been adopted. I've been astonished at reading politicians basically saying, the Brexit deal that was negotiated, we, we we only did it because we had to, and it was always the intention to renegotiate it. We never had any real intention of kind of keeping the Northern Ireland Protocol we negotiated. And you kind of think, is that really the case? That wasn't what was being said at the time. Mm. Here was an oven-ready deal that was kind of being, being introduced. So this kind of spinning and not saying what you mean and not quite telling the truth and weaseling out of responsibility has become, unfortunately, part and parcel of our political is that, culture. Is that a problem for church leaders, that kind of spinning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, just give uh, us an, just kind of uh, give us a for well, instance. I, th I think, for example, leaders uh, can uh, easily overstate their size, their impl implications. They big up their membership numbers. Um, uh, they talk about themselves positively um, in that way. Sometimes the way that they can speak about others can be a little bit like sort of prime minister's question time. We kind of big yeah. ourselves up yeah. by running kind of others. Um, uh, kind of down. Um, when they're confronted and challenged, they tend to defend and explain and excuse rather than simply accept that maybe it was a mistake um, and to, to, to put that right. I think, I, and, and partly that is vulnerability. I guess the reason why politicians behave like this is their job is on the line. Boris Johnson's political career is on the line. His potential position in the kind of constituency and whether there's a recall is on the line. And people under pressure defend themselves because they are fearful. And, and, and actually, that's again a natural human sinful. Um, reaction. Um, and we don't actually live in a culture that has a great deal of grace, actually, no. um, uh, in, in relation to people who are making incredibly difficult decisions, and sometimes they get it wrong. And there's a difference between do they do that mendaciously or do they do that um, uh, kind of because they're, they're they're not as competent or because they're caught by the pressures of the moment. Mm. So we can be actually very judgmental, and that judgmentalism actually creates a culture in which people obfuscate mm. about what's happening. And there happening. is a place for transparency too, isn't there? I think what's become clear now as we start to look at, you know, the WhatsApp messages from Hancock and various other people is, is politicians were saying things in public with absolute certainty that they were very unsure of. Mm. Now, obviously, they had to set public policy and they had to think wisely about how they did that. But I think there is a this is part of integrity, isn't it, to actually appear to be very certain about things that you're not certain about. Mm. Um, in private. I, I think in, in church leadership, we have to be transparent. If there are questions we don't know the answer to, we have to say, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I think that sort of humility is often lacking in 
in the world in general and that that cashes out in church life and i think church leaders actually can in their teaching and their preaching can do that all the time they actually speak things with a degree of certainty that aren't quite justified and i think for all of us there are levels of theological conviction about what we think um, is taught and right yeah. some of things we hold um, with absolute certainty others um we might have a lesser degree of certainty about them so we might have um, very clear certainty about the nature of the atonement and the death of Christ, slightly less certainty about actually what the right mode of baptism is. Mm. But so often we mm. can speak with a conviction that it, we are absolutely certain. And sometimes actually we would serve our congregations better by recognising that. Yes. And, and actually we, we do, um, we, we make partnership very difficult. We're just doing our local conferences at the moment on partnership. There's a good podcast with Gavin Orland you might like to catch up with. And, and actually if we we attach too much certainty to too many things that actually the Bible doesn't allow us to be absolutely certain about. We make partnership very difficult. It's not just within the congregation. It's how we work with another congregation down the road. That becomes almost impossible unless you share every you know, mm. jot, jot and tittle of, of, of every doctrine. Mm. Last couple of minutes, let's talk about the final of The Apprentice, oh, which has taken place uh, this week. Adrian oh, wanted to talk apprentice. about this. Uh, all I can say, without any spoiler alert at all, uh, the winner was female. But enough of my teasing, uh, Adrian. Uh, what, what did you want to I say about I have to confess, this? I don't watch The Apprentice. Oh. Um, I find it rather tiresome. Got some family connections going back with... Um, Lord Sugar and um, yeah, I just I find it all a bit contrived. Well, that's another. That's another. And, I'll make a um, note of well, that. Um, I mean, it is. I, I think it's important to remember it's an entertainment show, right? Mm. It's not a business show. I think initially when it started off, it did start off more as a you know, budding entrepreneurs, um, but clearly they're selecting candidates now on the basis of who can be um, good telly, good telly, yeah. and um, that means they're often you know. I mean, the, the, these people who were presenting business plans, I saw the um, interviews round. I happened to be reading a book and it was on my wife and daughter watching it. And I couldn't avoid it really. And um, it was extraordinary just to see how ill judged and yeah. just how not really very well formed the business plans were, you know, just in, in, in the real basics. But I think the thing that really struck me about it is that the people who were doing the interviews were almost wholly without exception, extraordinarily rude. Mm. Yeah. Very aggressive. I mean, you would almost use the word abusive mm. in some, you know, they're making people cry. Um, and I, I, it just seems to me that there is a there is a kind of model of leadership that is being um, in an. I know, I know it's entertainment. Don't write in, but it, it's a kind of model of leadership that's being put forward, um, which actually doesn't bear a lot of relation to the real world. I mean, I've, I've worked in business, and people who get to be senior leaders of organisations tend not to be mm. like that. And mm. um, uh, entrepreneurs are slightly different. Mm. Um, you know, sort of the go-getters of this world. But I mean, I sit, I've sat in a meeting with, um, you know, spoiler alert, I sat in a meeting with Richard Branson um, talking about tax. It was very dull. Don't worry, it was very dull. And and he's not like that either. Uh, so you just sort of think this sort of aggressive, punchy, you know, mm -hmm. what about you? No, 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 that sort of stuff. That's not leadership. And um, I, I think we've got to be careful that we don't take that on as a model mm. and think, you know, oh, well, that's great. That's, you know, that's, you know, to, to the way to interrogate things is to really go for people and really sort of pick holes in stuff. You know, the, the Christian leadership is is modeled on Christ and his servant heartedness, his gentleness. And you can, you can be, um, uh, the, the guy who mentored me um, for, really for nine years died a couple of weeks ago, Eric Lane, in his 90s, great pastor, very, uh, very, very grateful to God for him. He, he was tenacious, Eric, tiny guy, um, very short, but he, he was tenacious, but he was extraordinarily gentle. And I think we mustn't confuse um, 
the, the two. So you, you can hold on to things very firmly and you can have strong opinions about things. You can pursue things very vigorously. You can be tenacious and you can still be gentle. Mm. And that, it seems to me, is just blown apart by The Apprentice as a model of leadership. We, we've got to reject that. Oh, we have watched it. My kids watch it and it's one of the things we can do together as a, a kind of family. But um, uh, at one level, I think it reveals, particularly over the development of The Apprentice, the corrupting effect of entertainment, mm. actually. Mm. Um, I think that it did start out with people who were actually competent in business, who were performing tasks that were more business orientated. Um, and I think it, it's just become another reality television program. Yeah. And actually, all reality television effectively functions like a pantomime. Mm. Um, in that people are set up yes. to appear ridiculous. Dear that's that's what gets Sugar. the audience in. Mm. Um, everybody becomes a cliche. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it, it's you know, it's it's a sort of scripted um, outworking, and, it, and it's actually there that everybody can effectively laugh at it mm. um, and laugh at the candidates. Um, and I think that is actually what entertainment does to a lot of things. Um, actually, that 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 is what entertainment does to Christianity when entertainment becomes the focus of the church and the way the church operates. Mm way of teaching, the way of leadership, the way that we treat one another. If yeah. we think the purpose is primarily to entertain, then it will end up being debased. Yes. And I think that's what's happened in The Apprentice. And it seems to me that it's a tired format um, that basically ought to end. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I think the lesson for us is, is actually if we buy into that reality television kind of culture, and that is feeding into the way that we think we ought to be doing church, the way our services ought to be being run, the way that we ought to be preaching. In the end, we will de be debasing something mm. precious mm. and significant. Baroness Brady, um, who's part of it, uh, one, one of the contestants called her Karen by mistake, probably because off camera they are calling her Karen. Yeah. And um, she um, looked at her steely-eyed and said, that's Baroness Brady to you. Um, which actually is incorrect. You don't address a Baroness as Baroness Brady, and um, uh, Baroness Brady should know that. So I think I'll write in, and uh, public service broadcasting, <laughs> Phil, um, in the news, FIC, how to address a Lord appropriately. Well, well maybe so, it should be Lord, Lord Sugar, you're retired, should be the next slide, maybe. <laughs> Brothers, thanks for talking uh, about the news this week. This has been Independence, the FIC podcast. Do rate, uh, leave a review, and uh, we'll, speak fine. We'll, speak, fine. we'll speak to you again uh, very soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank